This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Kids spend as little as four minutes a day playing outside in an unstructured way. That's according to Great Outdoors Colorado, which invests lottery money in parks and wild places. They've just launched an ad campaign to get kids to spend more time away from screens. GOCO's executive director is Chris Castilian. Kids go to school, they come home, go to soccer practice, go to gymnastics practice, but they have very little unstructured playtime anymore. They want kids to, quote, let their imaginations and curiosity run wild. It reminds me of an adventure I took a couple of years ago with author Scott Sampson and his daughter Jade. Sampson, a paleontologist, used to be at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He wrote a book called How to Raise a Wild Child. He and Jade met me in Denver's City Park. We could have chosen to meet anywhere. Why did we meet in City Park? Because it's close to home. That's where everybody should be going to connect with nature, right? Close to home. Yeah, but in Colorado, isn't so much of the focus on, you know, the mountain resort over there? Yeah, but if you're going to connect with nature, it has to be the kind of thing that happens every day. Like when most of us who are over 30 were kids and we just went outside and played in the neighborhood. Well, this is our neighborhood. This is our backyard. So that's why we come here. Now, Jade, you are agreed to meet with us on your Saturday. Is this something you would normally do, get outside with Dad, or do you feel the pull of the glowing screen sometimes? Um, I do a little bit of both. A lot of the time he'll take me for a walk, and then, like if I'm doing homework over the weekend, he'll break it up, and then I'll just go back to doing my homework. And how do you feel when he drags you out from under the roof? Um, Sometimes I'm a little bit mad at first because I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, but then eventually it gets more exciting. City Park is expansive. It includes the zoo, the Museum of Nature and Science, and several small lakes, one with an island. And that island has trees on it that are absolutely full of double-crested cormorants, these big black birds that are flying around in circles. And if we look closely here, we'll be able to see that some of these cormorants are carrying sticks and branches of various kinds in their mouth, like that one right over there, because they're building nests in these trees. And of course, they use the island because humans and other animals can't get there very easily. One just flew by me with a stick in its mouth. Yeah, and I think the first step to nature connection is just noticing nature. We step out the door and we go running to the car or wherever it is we're going, and if we just stop... And we can all afford 10 seconds and just look around. What's going on? What can you hear? What do you see? What are the clouds doing? How does the grass feel in the air? And that's the very first step. And, you know, if we want to connect our kids with nature, we need to start noticing it, too. We need to value it because, of course, the kids watch what we do far more than listen to what we say. Nothing you've said so far is revolutionary, right? Step outside and get into nature. And yet... It can be rather difficult for parents and kids alike. Why is something so simple so out of reach for some families? I think a lot of it has to do with the busy factor, that the parents and the kids are so busy. Kids have more homework now. They're over-scheduled with piano lessons and organized sports and all these things. They just don't have time for getting outside. And then the parents are busy, too, and... With the parents overscheduled, they kind of, it's really easy to put your kid in front of the screen and say, go, because they're happy to be there. Jade, are you overscheduled? Uh, yes. I have a lot of homework, swimming on Wednesdays, drumming, and then 
Um, sometimes I'll have track and field meets. And then when it comes to the glowing screens, is there a game you're addicted to or, you know, a website you check out a lot or something like that? Um, game I'm addicted to would probably be Trivia Crack, which is like a trivia game where they have all these different categories. Why focus on nature? What are the benefits? Well, there's two kinds of attention, really. There's this very focused flashlight kind of spotlight attention that you use when you're reading a book or looking at screens. And then there's this much more broad uh, kind of attention where you're opening up your senses and it isn't based just on sight. You're really getting the sounds and the feel and all of that. And nature has that effect on us. Whether you're a kid or a grown-up, your heart rate goes down, your blood pressure tends to go down, and you just relax more. And it allows you to sort of reset yourself so that when you go back to that directed attention, you're able to do it much more effectively. And there's some harm in always being in that direct attention state? Yeah, it increases stress level. I mean, the uh, cortisol levels go up in our bodies. We walk around uptight all the time. We're not able to concentrate and focus as much. We're not able to use our imaginations and be creative as much. So there's all kinds of physical benefits and mental benefits for just even a few minutes. And that deep emotional bond with the natural world that we're trying to foster in kids it's helped by going to Rocky Mountain National Park or going to Aspen, but it really forms just through these everyday abundant encounters with the natural world that most of us who are adults had when we were kids. A curious Canada goose is inspecting us. Probably looking for food would be my guess. Indeed, and you can see the beaded water on his chest. That's right. And one of the things that I love to point out, oh, there's a goose, a gray lag goose too. And they're descended from domestic geese, but now they're wild here. But one of the things I point out about these birds is that they're actually dinosaurs. And of course, I am a dinosaur paleontologist. So it is very cool to think about the fact that every bird that we're looking at right now are all descended from little feathered dinosaurs that lived over 150 million years ago. Is what we're doing a luxury that only some can afford? Because what we're doing is taking up time, and time for many people is money. And if you are living paycheck to paycheck, if you don't have easy access to transportation, then what we're doing, this simple act, becomes a lot more complicated. We tend to think about nature as a leisure option that maybe we should do on weekends or something. And my point is that the, the science behind this suggests that we should think about nature more like literacy nature connection, more like literacy, that we make time to read to our kids because we really value uh, the fact that they need to be readers. Well, nature has these tremendous impacts, particularly on children growing up, and we should be in the same way making time for kids to get outside and, and really connect with nature, especially this unstructured free play that most of us had as kids that doesn't happen anymore. Some kids can reach 10, 11 years of age and never have an unsupervised moment. And we need to let kids be out there making their own games, really driving their own play, because that's what they're built to do. And that helps their minds grow. They really do become better problem solvers, more creative, more imaginative. I've even heard that Google is now when they're hiring you know, millennials, if they ask about their childhood and if the millennial says, yeah, I've been into screens my whole life, that's not nearly as, as impressive to them as kids who spent time outdoors. 
because they like that element of creativity and imagination that comes from abundant free play. I think what's uh, fascinating about what you just said is that so often play is seen as leisure, as a kind of bonus or reward even indulgence. But no one thinks of being able to read as an indulgence. They think of it as a necessity. And you're imploring parents, and I suppose educators, and city leaders and designers to think that way too. Absolutely. I think this affects how we think about the design of cities. That right now, the children in nature movement is largely a white affluent movement. And every kid deserves the right to connect with nature. So we need to think about putting nature, vibrant nature, within a 10-minute walk of every citizen in Denver and every other city as well. Scott Sampson is author of How to Raise a Wild Child. After our visit to Denver's city park a few years ago, we spoke at the Tattered Cover Bookstore when he was with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. His book argues for kids to spend more time playing outside. It's something the state of Colorado is also encouraging with a new ad campaign this summer. Samson writes about a mass migration that has taken place in the course of one generation, a migration indoors. I asked him, though, about parents' fears around letting their kids outside, potentially unsupervised, a sort of stranger danger thing. There is this big fear factor these days, and it's it's everywhere. There was a couple in Maryland that made the press recently because they let their kids walk a mile home. And the kids, I believe, are six and ten, maybe. And somebody called the police, and the police came and picked them up. And child services, child protection services said, we may take your children away because you let them walk a mile home. And the parents had taught them how to do this and to be safe, but this wasn't considered to be reasonable. So this is where we've gone in one generation. I'm sure that most of the people in the room here remember all kinds of freedom all day long, some of it miles from home when they were kids, but we don't do that anymore in spite of the fact that the chances of your child being abducted by a stranger are no greater today than they were in 1950 or 1960. So we have these fears, but they're largely fed by the media, and having said that, the fears are all too real. And as the father of a 12-year-old girl, I can understand them. And yet, we need to think about reversing course and giving kids more autonomy in their lives. They need that just to become healthy adults, ultimately. It's what you had growing up in British Columbia, is that right? Yeah, in Vancouver, B.C. You, I guess we're like um, near a forest of some kind. I mean, when you write about your childhood in this book, it has a kind of Huck Finn quality to it. I've never thought of myself as a Huck Finn. That's interesting. Um, (laughs) So a block and a half from a forest uh, on the west side of Vancouver, British Columbia. And from a pretty young age, we were allowed to go into the forest. In fact, my elementary school was on the edge of the forest, and at recess, we went running into the forest and played. I can't even imagine that today. And that was my childhood. And when I, wherever I've been all over the planet digging for dinosaurs, the lens I take with me to look at nature in Africa or Argentina or India or wherever is the lens given to me by that temperate rainforest in British Columbia. What do you remember doing in that rainforest? 
Well, it depends on the age, of course. <laughs> I, I write in the book about walking into a pond that was full of tadpoles and going in over my waist with my mother standing there, kind of smiling and cheering me on. But later on, as a teen, we would go in there, just a bunch of guys, and we'd go bushwhacking. We rarely stayed on the trails. And we went bushwhacking with our dogs, and we'd play these games where we'd pick up sticks and throw them at each other. But nobody was hurt. You know, we played these games, we took risks, we climbed trees, we did all this stuff, but it was a wild childhood, and uh, I think it ultimately uh, allowed me to come, become a scientist. Well, that was what I was going to ask, is how much those formative years led you to be someone who spends a lot of time in nature as a dinosaur paleontologist. Yeah, there's a woman named Louise Chala, who is, uh, who's up at UC Boulder, psychologist, and she did a study years ago interviewing people who consider themselves to have a strong bond with nature. And it turned out there were two things that were most critical that they all reported in common. One was abundant time in nearby nature, either wild or semi-wild nature, could be right in the neighborhood. And the second thing was an adult to share the journey. And I had both of those things. In particular, it was my mother who was my nature mentor, although I I'm guessing she never thought of herself that way. Hmm. And uh, it was those two ingredients that really pushed me in that direction. I asked Scott Sampson how all of this connects to childhood obesity. It's hard to draw one-to-one correlations, but let's be realistic. If the average kid today spends four to seven minutes playing outdoors every day, and that's over 90% less than their parents did, then clearly, if all you're exercising is your thumbs that's going to have an impact on your waistline. And uh, we know that it's not just obesity. It's attention deficit disorder. It's diabetes. It's depression. It's inflammatory diseases like asthma. Um, All of these have been skyrocketing over the past generation to the point where one U.S. Surgeon General said that this generation of kids growing up today could be the first to have a life expectancy shorter than that of their parents. So it is a crisis that's happened because of this indoor migration over one generation. You said the average child spends four to seven minutes outside a day? Playing in nature, yeah, sort of just playing the way we used to as kids. What are they doing for four minutes? I mean, four minutes isn't even enough time to get into trouble. You know what I mean? Exactly. And and they're not not left unsupervised. They're just basically moving, you know, that's the, the time between the car and going in the house and things like that, versus seven to ten hours in front of a screen. You mentioned ADHD. Does science back up that that is connected to a nature deficit? Well, it's interesting. There's about 17% of kids in in the U.S. are now on Ritalin or some other drug associated with ADHD. And once again, this has skyrocketed over the last generation. There are studies now that show that getting kids out into nature decreases the symptoms of attention deficit disorder. Uh, And there, there is speculation that the great increase in ADHD that we've seen is because kids spend so much time indoors using that focused attention and don't spend near as much time outdoors using that more diffuse kind of attention. Just since our conversation at City Park, I've changed my behavior. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. You're welcome. I will notice that if I have even 30 seconds to just stop and look at the mountains or stop and look at the sky, that it, it, has, it just it has improved my life, and it doesn't have to be two hours. 
Yeah. Um, I, I think sometimes we let the perfect be the enemy of the good in these things, you know? Yeah, I mean, just a few seconds makes a difference. And not just to you, but to your kids. Because if your kids see you pausing and listening to birds or looking at the clouds or feeling the grass or looking at the flowers, they're going to know that you value nature. And they're far more likely to value nature themselves. You say that some doctors are writing park prescriptions. Is that, is that true? That is true. And it's happening more and more across the country now, where doctors are literally writing park prescriptions that are being filled by park rangers. So you go to the park, the ranger will sign off on your prescription and show that you've done your uh, time in the park. And it's having great effects. There's a lot of fascinating research in your book. Uh, for example, even just a few trees can reduce stress for residents of high-rise housing complexes. Uh, this was done in a low-income Chicago neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of studies that show that even just access to plants or a view out your window has great health effects. That if you go for surgery and you're recovering in a hospital room, if that hospital room has windows, your recovery time will be less and you'll need less pain medication. That inmates who have views of... Um, uh, of nature have less sick time, and it has all, a number of other positive effects. So just being around some kind of green greenery makes a difference. And the Japanese have known about this for years. They have this thing called forest bathing. Sometimes corporations will even send their employees out to this nearby forest, and they'll say, turn off all your technology and just go wandering for a few days. We'll pay for it. This is something called Shinrin-yoku, I That's think. That's right, Exactly. When we talked at City Park earlier, you mentioned that the kids in nature movement is largely a white one. Why do you think that is, and how do you begin to change? How do you begin to change that? I'm holding you personally responsible. How does one begin to change that? Well, I mean, the the environmental movement is largely a white affluent movement too, at least traditionally. And so if we're going to make this a movement for every child, no matter what their skin color, no matter what their family income, we have to think about ways of scaling what we do to urban levels. Because most of us now live in cities, so nature connection will either happen in cities or not at all. One of the, the most important things is just raise awareness and get grown-ups knowing that they need to get the kids in their lives out into nature. But ultimately, we need to think about scaling this effort through collaboration, through institutions like mine, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and the zoo, and the botanic gardens, and the Nature Conservancy, and the Trust for Public Land. We're all at the table now talking about how we might collaborate in Denver to create a movement to, one, add more nature, what might be called rewilding, with greenways and parks and schoolyards, etc. And the second thing is getting kids engaged in nature, whether that's in school hours, after school, on weekends, and particularly in underserved communities that don't get access to this. Well, the underserved communities, I think, is key. Just the other day on the program, I was interviewing a mother and grandmother worried about her kids in a more rough-and-tumble Denver neighborhood. You know, she worried about them walking home, uh, what violence they might encounter. And though stranger danger is not any greater, as you say, than it was, say, in the 50s, there are places where it's dangerous to be out, certainly after certain hours. What do you say to people living in those realities? 
Right, it's tough. Certainly not all neighborhoods are safe. So there's a number of things we can do. We can take our kids out to local parks. We can think about regreening schoolyards and allowing those schoolyards to be open after school, potentially with play workers overseeing kids so that those kids are safe. Regreening so, them though, so not not asphalt playgrounds. Right. Actually rewilding with native plants because native plants attract native insects. And native insects attract native birds and other animals. So you can take a schoolyard and turn it into a mini ecosystem that's representative of the short grass prairie that we all live in. Let's get some ideas of activities parents might do with their kids. So you suggest bringing nature to your home or yard, things like hummingbird feeders and a bat box. Really? Oh, a come bat on. box? Bats are wonderful. <laughs> You have a fear you need to confess here? <laughs> bat boxes are just like birdhouses. You put up these boxes, they attract bats, and guess what bats eat a whole ton of? Mosquitoes. Yeah, so if you want to get rid of all those flying bugs in your backyard, bring in the bats because they'll help you out. Uh, so these things are easy to put up and can be very effective. And it is easy to attract nature into your backyard. You can put up milkweed to attract monarch butterflies. There's bee gardens. There's all kinds of things that will attract biodiversity, lots of different species, into your yard or school ground. You stress actually the importance of even nighttime adventures. Yeah, I think we overlook the power of nighttime. In the book, I write about Rachel Carson, and she wrote this terrific book called A Sense of Wonder, in which she took out her very young nephew, and she took him to the beach at night when there was a storm. And there was, the surf was pounding, and they're standing on the beach. And you can just imagine what that would feel like with the froth of the foam flying through the air, and it's pitch black, and you can see stars above. But even just walking through your neighborhood at night can be a very powerful and different experience than walking during the day. Now, of course, your neighborhood has to be safe, but assuming it is, that that's a great thing for kids too. And it, it turns out that if you do that, even just once in a while, kids will remember that, and it might stick with them the, the rest of their lives. Parents may hate me for this question, especially the ones gathered here. Is a pet a way of bringing more nature into a child's life? And I can now hear kids saying, See, Mom, Dr. Scott says I have to have a dog. My health's at risk, you know. But what do you think of pets as, as nature connection? It's a really interesting and kind of complex question. It turns out, I mean, I sort of break up nature into wild nature that we're not controlling, domestic nature like pets and plants in our homes, and technological nature like documentaries or video stuff, whatever, representations of nature, museum exhibits. So having pets actually is a connection to nature. And we do form a bond with pets, of course. Anyone who has pets knows this. And it turns out that even the chemicals that go, in your, go off in your head are the same chemicals that help you create a bond between two humans, uh, oxytocin and others. And that this may happen when we're out in, in nature as well. So even having plants, house plants in your house, is a way to connect with nature. That was a very... A politic answer. You're n <laughs> Susie, you're not getting a puppy. Here's a fern. <laughs> Again. How to raise a wild child is the subject of today's show. Wild as in spending more time outside. Paleontologist Scott Sampson wrote about this a few years ago. He was vice president of research at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. 
Samson and I spoke in front of an audience at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, and he laid out how to encourage a connection to nature in children, depending on how old they are. Well, we have to respond to the longings that children have at every age. So kids in that early childhood phase, zero to five, zero to six, all they want to do is free play, unstructured play. They are built to do that. And anyone who's ever had a kid, like most of the people in this room know this, that if you take a baby and let the baby wander around, that baby will just naturally start to play. Take three or four toddlers that have never met each other, take them to a playground, and within five minutes, it doesn't even matter if they know each other's names, they're playing this imaginative game and creating rules and things like that. So unstructured free play in which parents get out of the way is the most important in early childhood. In middle, and that can be just in the backyard. Backyards can be plenty wild if you're a preschooler. In middle childhood, say about 6 to 11, now this is the age of competence. This is the age where around the world kids are put to work, like hauling water and making dinner and you know, delivering newspapers, whatever it might be. So kids want to demonstrate their ability to be competent. So how can this work with nature connection? Send them out collecting things that might be out in nature or give them a challenge like catching a lizard or frog or something like that. It's a hands-on sport. You got to get into it. Yeah, remind us the age range once again. Middle childhood between about 6 and 11. Okay. And now we get to teens or adolescents. And teens crave two things, and they might not be the things that jump to your mind. Uh, <laughs> They particularly crave time with their peers, and they want to take risky challenges. Their brains force them in that direction. So they are going to go do that, whether we think it's a good idea or not. So if you set nature up as the ground for those challenges, you can actually be doing those teens a service and and allow them to further their connection with nature. So, for example, if in middle childhood you get them out skiing or surfing or mountain climbing or whatever it is, and they can improve on that as a teen. And maybe you even have a rite of passage where they ski that double black diamond run or they do that backpack to the top of a 14 or or whatever it is. That could help teens really connect with nature. But the key there is parents are exactly the wrong people to be nature mentors to teens. It's the last thing, and my daughter here is, will tell me at 12 years old already, she's going, Dad, you know, I love you, but I don't really want you around when I'm going out and doing these things. She wants to be hanging out with friends her own age. So it's good to have 20-somethings who are looking after those kids. This is why Outward Bound and models like that have been so successful. I want to share a New York Times article with you. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, it's titled, Steve Jobs Was a Low-Tech Parent. Uh, Years ago, the technology columnist Nick Bilton asked Jobs what his kids thought of the iPad, and the now late Jobs' response was, they haven't used it. We limit how much technology our kids use at home. Bilton writes, I'm sure I responded with a gasp and dumbfounded silence. I had imagined the Jobs' household was like a nerd's paradise, that the walls were giant touchscreens, the dining table was made from tiles of iPads, and that iPods were handed out to guests like chocolates on a pillow. Nope, Mr. Jobs told me not even close. How about some tips for creating limits on technology? Well, the first thing I want to say is that I am not arguing that we need to go back to nature and unplug completely that we need to move forward into a future that is rich in both technology and nature. 
but in balance. And right now there's no balance. We are completely overloaded on the technology side of things. So technology can help us foster nature connection. We do need to unplug some of the time and open our senses. But other times, we can use that phone to do geocaching or to take photographs and upload our, our images to iNaturalist so that scientists can use them or use an app to identify plants or rocks or animals. You mentioned geocaching. Just explain that. Geocaching, there's millions of geocache sites. You download the app to be on your phone, and it's like a treasure hunt. You can do these in the city, or you can do them out in wild places. And as I said, there's millions of them around, including lots around Denver. So you can be walking out on a trail in the middle of nowhere looking for a treasure, and once you find it, you can see what's inside and add your own little note, etc. I want to challenge an assumption you make in the book, that falling in love with nature will make people better stewards of the earth. Is it that simple? I mean, I can love nature and still drive a car that burns fossil fuels and buy things with lots of packaging. Is it more complicated than that? It's a little more complicated than that, but I think I would argue the greatest failure of environmentalism, and I consider myself an environmentalist, so I'm part of this, is that we have assumed for the past generation that if we just tell people the the negative facts, the true facts about half the species on the planet may be gone before the end of the century, and the planet's going to warm up a few degrees, and sea level's going to rise, blah, blah, blah. If we just tell people those facts, they'll change their behavior. And any marketing executive could have told us a generation ago that that wouldn't work, that you have to engage people emotionally in a positive way, typically, to change their behavior. You write in the book that if a company is selling a car they don't wax on about its horsepower and torque. Right. They show some gorgeous human driving it on some beautiful road, and they appeal to your emotional self. And you're saying in a way that, that the environmental movement could use a little of Madison Avenue? I think so. There's a fellow named David Sobel, who's one of the sort of founders of environmental education. And he has, I'm going to misquote him slightly, but basically he says, no disasters before fourth grade. So let's stop telling kids about the planet warming up and the species dying and polar bears disappearing until they have a chance to form a bond. Why would we teach kids about the disappearing Amazon rainforest before they have a chance to form a bond with their local forest, wherever they happen to be? So save the negative stuff until kids have a chance to form that bond. And I believe that that falling in love with nature is prerequisite to becoming sustainable. So that's why I go so far as to say the disconnect between children and nature is on par with climate change as one of the greatest crises of our time, because why is anyone going to become sustainable if they don't care about where they live? And why are they possibly going to care if they don't spend any time outside? You've mentioned the role that schools can play several times, including playgrounds that are greened up and open you know, beyond school hours. What other role do teachers and principals and districts play? I think education could be one of the most powerful tools in the effort to reconnect children and nature. It's also one of the most problematic uh, aspects of our society because the authority is so dispersed uh, in school boards. Teachers and administrators are already way too busy, overworked. So I understand all the challenges. Having said that, if we could get education becoming more place-based, where kids are learning about their local place. 
we could transform education and engage kids in the process. Okay, I'm an English teacher at a middle school in Denver. How do I do that? You take your kids out into the schoolyard, you read them a poem about a tree, and then you have them write a poem about a tree in the backyard or in the schoolyard. So they're engaging with that local place. So no matter what the topic, social studies, art, math, you name it, you can teach it out in the schoolyard. And guess what? If you were to pull the kids in this room right now and you said, where would you rather have class today? In this four-wall building sitting at this little desk or out in the schoolyard? They're going to pick the schoolyard. Yeah, because they can work. mess around on the schoolyard, right? But messing around is a good thing sometimes. We've got to let kids do that. We're getting rid of recess. We're shortening lunch hour. We're lengthening the school day. And we look at countries like Finland that rank right at the very top in the world in education, and they are doing exactly the opposite. How does this connect to the STEM movement? So that's science, technology, engineering, and math. You know, presumably as a scientist, I think you might like this emphasis on these subjects that have such real-world applicability. Uh, But is STEM, from what you've seen, integrating nature? I would say, and I am a big fan of STEM, and I would say that for the most part, the STEM movement, which is growing and well-funded in this country, is focused on the physical sciences, physics, chemistry, etc., and not nearly so much on the natural sciences. So... Imagine if we could engage kids learning about science and technology out in the schoolyard and that they're doing service projects in their own community, whether it's a recycling program or pulling invasive plants or uh, building a trail and something that they can be proud of in the long run. Now they're engaged with the community, they're doing service, and their science that they learn is based on activities they're doing locally. I think that could be transformative. You are the host and science advisor of a show aimed at preschoolers called Dinosaur Train, which is produced by the Jim Henson Company. Hi, I'm Velma Velociraptor. Oh, hello, I'm Mrs. Pteranodon, and these are my kids, Buddy and Tiny. Hi, nice to meet you. As someone so focused on getting kids outside, were you conflicted about contributing to a television show? Absolutely. And it's, I mean, if you're thinking, you're probably going, man, this guy's a hypocrite. He's helping to create this product that addicts kids to screens. And so, just to tell the story, I got the phone call from an executive at the Jim Henson Company, and she said, so we're doing this program for PBS. It's going to be all about dinosaurs. Do you think you might want to get involved? And I said, well, what's it called? And she said, Dinosaur Train. And I said, you can't call it that. And she said, why not? And I said... Well, because I'm a paleontologist, and we're always trying to convince people that humans and dinosaurs didn't live at the same time. You can't (laughs) stick them both on trains. And she said, no, 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 don't worry. We're only going to put dinosaurs on the train. (laughs) And I paused, and I thought, well, that's just brilliant, right? This is like chocolate and peanut butter if you're four years old. So it's beautiful. But I said, okay, listen, I still need to have a tagline at the end about getting kids out into nature. And Tony, my wife, who is here this evening as well, came up with the line, which I use, which is get outside, get into nature, and make your own discoveries. And I'll be dead honest, at the time, over six years ago, I had no clue if television could encourage kids to turn off the television. But I'm happy to report six years later that it does. I've heard from hundreds of parents, and now PBS is catching on to it in general, and there's multiple PBS shows that are now focusing on getting kids outdoors. The last time we spoke on Colorado Matters, you told us about the discovery of a dinosaur whose name translates to King of Gore. What are you working on now as a dinosaur paleontologist? Yes, 
I don't just play one on television. I really <laughs> am a paleontologist in real life. And I've been working a lot the past 15 years in a place in southern Utah called Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And in that 15 years, we found an average of one new dinosaur species per year that no one has ever seen before. So the rate of discovery around the world is still ramping up that more dinosaurs have been discovered, new dinosaurs, in the past generation than in all prior history. And in the past year or two in Grand Staircase, we have found uh, at least one or two more new dinosaurs, including a new horn dinosaur, a relative of Triceratops, and we have three others that we've already named from there. We have giant turtles, and I've got my arms spread really wide here, almost as wide as I can spread them. Multiple of these giant turtles called Basilemi, some with even eggs preserved inside them in the skeletons. Oh, and wow. they're 77 million years old. So we're finding lots and lots of things. And what we're really trying to do is not just trophy hunt for dinosaurs, but reconstruct the ancient world the way it looked 77 million years ago when it was a greenhouse world, when there were no polar ice caps, when sea levels were much higher, when North America was flooded and Colorado was underwater. When you talk about this, I can see the eight-year-old in you, Scott. <laughs> yes, I never really did grow up. It's kind of one of those great professions. Scott Sampson talking with us a couple years ago when he was with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. His book is How to Raise a Wild Child. I spoke with Sampson in front of an audience at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, and now questions from parents and kids in that audience. I'm Janice Cooper. I'm a, a mother of two sons and a middle school teacher in Boulder, Colorado. What do you think we can do to help parents not have this fear of letting your kids be outside? Well, Janice, it's a great question, and it's almost to the point where we have to take back the streets, sort of, and uh, just get our kids outside and talk to other parents about it and talk about what we're doing as we do it. And one of the most powerful ways that I know of to do this, and if you haven't ever thought of this, consider it, is family nature clubs. And I write about this in the book. Um, you can go to the Children and Nature Network website to download a kit if you're interested. It can be as few as two families. And trust me, if you start this, you may have 50 families come join you because that's happened before. But if you publicize this, it's just a way to get families out into nature on a regular basis together. The parents love it because the parents get to just hang out together and talk grown-up stuff. The kids love it because they're playing with all these other kids. I mean, what kid isn't going to love that? And it's out in nature. It could just be in City Park. It could be up in the mountains or somewhere in between. It could be a trip to the museum. But you're going out and you're valuing nature and you're going and learning about it. So that's another way to get more families involved and talking about it. Very powerful. Hi, I'm uh, Erica Byrne of Denver, and I'm here with my six-and-a-half-year-old Julianne, who is a huge fan of Dinosaur Train um, and has been for years. My question is this. You know, we do go out in City Park and go for family bike rides and that sort of thing a lot. You mentioned using technology to find answers to things. Are there particular apps that, that you would recommend? I, I, I wouldn't know the difference between a wild goose and a domesticated now wild goose, uh, you know, and, and I, I want to have those answers when she and I have these conversations. So is there any, are there resources you'd recommend for parents that are looking to sound a little bit more knowledgeable about nature than they might otherwise be? Erica, it's a wonderful question, and uh, I prefer not to be promoting one app over another, but I can tell you that it is dead simple. It's as easy as doing a Google search on 
nature apps. And if you do that, you'll actually be able to do it by category. And if you want to do rocks or plants or animals or stars, there's an app that allows you to hold up your phone to the constellations and identify what constellation you're looking at. So there's lots and lots of these things out there. Birding apps, tons of them if you want to um, identify birds. I think this raises an important point, which is you don't have to know a cormorant from an anhinga to take your kid out in nature. Those are birds, by the way. <laughs> thank <laughs> just, you. Just in case. <laughs> so thank you for saying that, Ryan. It's a, it's a point I really want to emphasize. There are many grown-ups who are intimidated about taking their kids out in nature because they feel like they don't have the answers. And the secret is you don't need to have any answers. In fact, answers aren't the most important thing when the goal is trying to inspire wonder and curiosity. Questions are far more important. So asking kids questions about things that they're interested in are really powerful. In the book, I write about a story where Jade and I were out walking in California where we used to live, and we saw a great blue heron, and it's one of my favorite birds, and Jade asked what it was, and the scientist in me wanted to just leap in and say, it's a great blue heron, and the scientific name is blah, blah. But I didn't. On that particular occasion, I held back, and I said, well, what do you think? She said, I don't know. It might be a heron. Let's just sit here and watch, and so we did. And we watched that heron eat rodents, and I was asking her questions about it. Then as soon as we got home, she looked it up, and she found out it was a great blue heron. And to this day, she still talks about that event. And if I had simply answered the question, we probably would have kept on walking, and it would have never stuck in our heads. So don't worry about having the answers. You really don't need them. My name is Emery Pless, and I live in Westminster. And my question is, how do you tell dinosaur bones from rocks? Wow, that's a great question, Emery. How do you tell dinosaur bones from rocks? I don't know if you're going to like the answer or not. I'm going to bet you do like the answer. There's even, for paleontologists, sometimes you find a fragment, you're not sure. And so what we do is we stick it on our tongue, literally. If it sticks to your tongue, it's a fossil bone. If it doesn't stick to your tongue, it's usually a rock. And it's because bones in life are porous and they're filled with things like blood and things like that. So trust me, it doesn't taste icky. You're not going to get, you know, cooties from a dinosaur bone. It's been buried for millions of years, and it is one of the greatest ways to be able to tell quickly a rock from a fossil. Best question of the show, by the way. (laughs) Barbara Coloroso from Littleton, Colorado. And uh, my grandson, Chance, who is six tomorrow and wanted to be a paleontologist since he was four and a fan of Dinosaur Train, asked me to ask you, uh, what do you do when a child is afraid of an animal? Now, there's a a good fear, I think, of certain things. We live in rattlesnake country. (laughs) But what do you do and how do you help a child who's afraid of the animals? Well, as you point out, It's good to be afraid of some animals. You know, we live in this sanitized world now where there aren't many big, scary things running around. Through most of Earth history, every continent, not just Africa, was full of large animals. You know, it wasn't that long ago that there were grizzlies roaming all over Colorado and wolves. Um, But these days, there aren't that many things to fear. And yet, we still have fears of some things, whether it's snakes or spiders or whatever. And one of the greatest ways to get over fears, for example, I've seen people with a fear of spiders go to a museum, get up the gumption to go and have a tarantula put in their hand, which is really tough if you're afraid of spiders, if you're an arachnophobe. But they do that, 
and they look at the animal in a new way, and if they can just hold themselves back from wanting to like go, ah, something like that, they actually see the animal as an animal, as another being to be respected that's just trying to make a living. And so one way as a grown-up to do this is talk about animals as other beings that are out there in the world and what they're trying to do and how they're trying to make a living. Kids love to name animals. And if you can encourage kids to do that and think about what do you think he's doing now and ask them questions about this thing they might be afraid of. Don't try and don't stick their face in the, in the animal, but just move them close and just get them curious. And if you do that, that fear will dissipate. It's like getting to know a human being that's at first scary as well. My name is Maya, and I'm 10. I, lived, I live in Denver now, but since I was three, I lived in Idaho Springs. We still have our house there, and we go there every weekend. And so I just noticed that Every t- so every time we have like a school field trip where we go into the mountains, all the kids in my class are scared of everything and think it's all dirty. But when I was about two, I would just go outside and eat dirt. And I am <laughs> fine now. <laughs> and it's just kind of weird that no one realizes that before we had a city we would just do that anyway. The dirty part is so interesting. You know, I I find that fascinating. It's great. So first of all, Maya, I need to tell you that there's a dinosaur named after you called Maya Sora, the good mother lizard. So that's a pretty cool fact you can take away. (laughs) The second thing is that um, it is true today that we don't let kids engage with nature. We're always telling kids, you know, no, don't pick up that stick and don't throw the rock and don't climb the tree and for God's sake, stay out of the mud, right? You know. But nature connection is this contact sport like we are talking about, and you need to get muddy. And it turns out that eating dirt is good for you. That it actually... Exactly. She says she's, not, she says she's not allergic to anything. She's a, she's a one-person experiment here. And, and it turns out that that applies generally, that people who live in places that are diverse in species and are out interacting with those places on a regular basis tend to be healthier. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Ryan, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Scott Sampson is author of How to Raise a Wild Child. We spoke a couple of years ago. And now the state of Colorado is sharing many of these same messages in a campaign to get kids outside. We'll have more on that effort called Generation Wild next week on CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.